Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is July the 9th, and I want to remind you that tonight at 10 p.m. Arizona time, uh, the Arizona Big Game Super Raffle deadline, uh, you can still uh, uh, put in for the Big Game hunts uh, in Arizona for the Big Game Super Raffle. You have till 10 p.m. Uh, to buy uh, your uh, tickets online. You can do so by going to ArizonaBigGameSuperRaffle.com and uh, these are year-long seasons from August 15th, 2017 to August 14th of 2018. Uh, you must be uh, 21 years uh, or older uh, to apply and you can use a credit card and it's a great opportunity to win some unbelievable tags uh, in the state of Arizona. So go to ArizonaBigGameSuperRaffle.com if you haven't already. I also want to uh, remind you guys that the Kuyu Mobile Showroom uh, is going to be uh, in uh, Bozeman, Montana, July 13th through the 15th, Denver, Colorado, July 20th through the 22nd, Colorado Springs, Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City, Missouri, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Lubbock, Texas, and so on. You can go to kuyu.com and find out where the Kuyu Mobile Showroom is going to be and, and when they're going to be there. You can try on every piece of gear, every size uh, every piece of gear that Kuyu makes will be in the truck in every size. Uh, so go check them out. The uh, feedback from the mobile showroom has been a uh, has been just unbelievable. Um, people are getting to touch it and feel it, and um, it's a, it's a huge move by Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. I want to thank them for their sponsorship of this podcast. Uh, also want to thank Go Hunt Insider. Uh, for their sponsorship of this podcast remind you guys the listeners that you can get a $50 go hunt gear shop store credit uh, when you use the j scott promo code when signing up this is hand-picked field tested gear um, with free shipping you've got great technical support and um, you can gain all kinds of insider points and store credits uh, by being a member uh, go check them out. Use the J. Scott promo code. Guys, I also want to thank the Outdoorsman's Cody Nelson and his crew. Use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there. Uh, 1-800-291-8065. The Optics Authority and uh, they're in Phoenix. Uh, they've just recently moved their shop to Fountain Hills, Arizona, which is just on the outskirts there of Phoenix. Uh, also want to thank Phonescope.com. Use the J. Scott 16 promo code and you get a 10% discount there at Phonescope. Uh, they, uh, Cheston and, and his crew, uh, take uh, any binocular and they can adapt it with any phone and you can be taking photos and videos immediately. Uh, guys, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast. Uh, without your support and without the sponsors' um, support of this podcast, it wouldn't be possible. Uh, I love hearing from you guys. You can send me email. I'd love to hear if you guys drew tags. I've already been getting emails uh, from uh, listeners that have drawn tags uh, in Arizona for deer and for sheep. Uh, and you can email me and uh, send me the great news at 
jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along my Instagram account. That's at jscottoutdoors. You can direct message me there uh, through Instagram. Love to hear from you. And congratulations to all those of you that have drawn tags. Uh, And um, guys, this is going to be a really fun episode with uh, Becky Clark Brown of Fernie Fly Fishing. Uh, And I was able to meet her and her husband. They uh, live here in Colorado, uh, really close to me. And um, it it, it was a really good episode. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. Uh, So guys, thanks again for your support. Let's get right to this episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is a special episode here. I'm in Carbondale, Colorado, and I'm here with Becky Clark, the owner of Fernie Fly Fishing in Fernie, B.C., and I'm going to have fun talking with Becky, and uh, I recently had Steve Brown on the podcast, and Becky is Steve Brown's wife, and they have a son named William. And she's about to head up here in a few days up to BC and start her guiding season up there in the Fernie area. Becky, how's it going? Good. Thanks I'm for having me. Super excited to have you on the podcast. I follow your Instagram. Uh, when I learned last year, you guys have a place here in the same property uh, where I stay in the summers. I started following Fernie Fly Fishing, and then I realized once I had fo- started following you on Instagram that, and you reminded me earlier today of those videos uh, that that the what, what's the guy's name that came up and shot the videos? Todd Moen of yeah, Catch Magazine, and phenomenal videos. And I remembered, oh, that's that girl that has the Fernie Fly Fishing, and so I've kind of followed you guys this year, um, and. Thanks. It yeah, it's it's uh, you do a great job on your Instagram, and I my wife and I have actually fished in Fernie. It's been probably fifteen years ago, and um, so this is going to be a fun episode to talk about some water that I'm somewhat familiar with because I fished for about a week or ten days up there. Um, but it'll be fun to kind of pick your brain and, and hear about it. Um, Becky, first and foremost, like. Uh, Give me a little background on yourself, where you were born, and maybe how you got into fishing, and and um, maybe how that then, you know, turned into fly fishing and, and, and what have you. I was born in Kamloops, British Columbia, up in Canada, and I grew up uh, the summer spending um, with my family on Shuswap Lake um, outside of Kamloops, and I fished all the time. I have two older brothers, so... Of course, I had to do everything that they could do, try to do it a little bit better. Sure. And so I spent a lot of time on the lake um, with my brothers fishing and chasing the rainbows. And when I was about 13, we moved to Texada Island, which is off the west coast of British Columbia. And So to give the listeners a little bit of a geographic lesson, where is that in relation to some towns that they might know? Well... Vancouver. Um, a lot of people are familiar with Vancouver and Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast. So Texada is a very small island um, on the Gulf Islands. And to get there, you have to go from Vancouver uh, up the Sunshine Coast to Seashelt okay. b- via ferry and then take another ferry to Powell River. 
then from Powell River, you take a ferry over to the little island of Texada, where I spent most of my childhood there. And we did a lot of ocean fishing. There was some sea run cutthroat, and it was always spin fishing. You know, we didn't really do a lot of fly fishing. It wasn't until college that I got into fly fishing. Was fly fishing. the um, uh, the the reason for your move? Um, you know, did your dad have a job there or your parents have a job there or what, what created the move? My dad um, was a mine manager in Kamloops and he is a heavy duty mechanic mechanic. And back in the nineties, uh, the mining industry uh, took a, a big decline. And so he ended up losing his job and he said to us kids, Hey, where do you want to move? We're like, well, we don't know. So he took us around to different spots in British Columbia and he let my brothers and I pick where we wanted to move. And so we thought Texada was cool. We're like, this is in the middle of nowhere. We get to take a ferry. And so he said, all right, Texada, it is. And he moved us all to Texada, thinking that if we made the decision ourselves, that the adjustment would be a lot easier. Yeah. And And was it? Was it? We didn't realize we had to take a ferry to school every yeah. day <laughs> and an hour bus ride. Sure, that wore the new wore off of that real yes, quick. Yes, sports and you know social life and grocery shopping, all the simple amenities you know that most people have in a city, you know, living on a small island. So it was actually, um, it was a blessing in disguise, I think, because it pushed the passion I had for the outdoors from when I was a kid. Because there was a lot of freedom to roam on a small island when there's not really much else to do. And like, what kind of um, elevation is that? And like, what kind of climate? I mean, is that is that a real kind of you know, very coastal, coastal, very rainy? Okay, yeah, the kind of weather that gets inside of lots you. of snow or just lots no, of no, no snow. Okay. We rarely got snow. A lot of rain, lots okay. of rain. So you got used to being in and out of your rain gear. Probably <laughs> yeah. as a kid, you just got wet. It's true. We actually didn't wear rain gear as a kid. We thought it was cool to go swimming in the rainstorms and run around in the rainstorms because it's warm, Yeah, but still a lot of rain. So it's one of those coastal places where the temperature pretty much all year is pretty much the same. It kind of goes up and down, but it, there's not huge swings of cold and super hot. No, it's kind of not like the mountains. Okay. Yeah. And then from there... Um, you went to college? Yeah. When I was, uh, I did a lot of girl, uh, guiding and, um, worked for my Canada Cord and did a lot of outdoor activities with that. And that's where I was like, I want to be a mountain guide and I'm going to school to be a mountain guide. Like hiking and hiking and ACMG certified mountain guide is what I wanted to be when I was 13, 14, 15. Okay. And eventually one day I wanted to own my own bed and breakfast lodge. And I said, there's got to be schooling for that. And all my counselors were like, there's no school for that. Well, I found one in the Rockies um, with College of the Rockies. There was um, a program called Adventure Tourism Business Operations. And where is that in Colorado? Um, No, it's in Canada. They have campuses around the Rocky Mountains. So around Fernie, Nelson, Cranbrook, Invermere. And so I was only, you know, fresh out of high school and I applied and I was too young. And so I said, let me in, come on, let me in. And so they let me in. I did an interview process and they let me in a year early. And the program was based around, you know, accounting, marketing, guiding, everything that you needed to learn to open up your own adventure tourism business. Yeah. And so that was there that I was handed my grandfather's fishing rod and reel. And that's when I started really fly fishing was in college at that program. Okay. And what was it about fly fishing? So you used your grandpa's rod and reel to learn. Yeah. That's pretty neat. You still have it. I, I have the reel, but the rod didn't 
kind of make my first few years of adventure. It broke or? Yeah, it broke in many pieces. I should have kept it, but I didn't. And so your love for fly fishing then from there really grew? Yeah, I did a practicum at a backcountry lodge um, in Golden. And so our school was based out of Invermere and I had a practicum at a lodge in Golden. And, you know, part of my job was a tail gunner, uh, horseback riding guide. I took kids fishing and fly fishing. And I also had to wake up at four and make all the bread and, and the, the desserts. And I had about three hours every day. And so the owners of the lodge said, you can take any horse you want. And there was a pond and I would take my fly rod and the horse and I would go for three hours. I didn't have any flies. And so <laughs> the wranglers would give me one fly. I lost it every time on the way out there. And so I would just spend my two hours learning to cast and I had nobody to teach me but I was, you know, spending time learning. And when I did manage to keep my fly, there were some fish in there that I would catch. And then I'd come back and serve dinner to the guests. And that was kind of my summer, most of my summer gig. And what type of fish were you mainly fishing for then? Uh, rainbows. It okay. was mostly rainbows. And so we did a lot of haying in the valley for the horse pastures. We had about 40 horses. And I hurt my back lifting 50-pound bales of hay. And so I said, well, I'm going to take some time off. And I drove to Fernie. And when I went through Fernie, I saw the river and the mountains. And I said, this is where I want to live. I walked into the fly shop. And it was Kootenai Fly Shop. Yeah. With um, Gord Silverthorne, who's the owner. And I said, I want a job. And he said, well, do you know anything about fly fishing? I said, I'm learning. You should hire me. And he said... You were persistent. (laughs) He said... Sounds good. You're hired. And so I went back and quit my practicum. I loaded everything I had in my truck. And I had no money because it was a practicum. I think I had like 500 bucks. Moved to Fernie and started like the next week. So how old were you at this point? 17. 17. 17. And you said, I want a job. And he said, you're hired. I said, I want to be a fishing guide and work in the shop. I want to learn more. I want... And back then there was not many women fly fishing. I think there was a few you know, female guides in the area, but I'm not quite sure when they started, but I'd been turned down by other outfitters when I, when I tried and he was, he, you know, saw my passion was like, I'll give you a chance. You're hired. Were you like shocked? I was, no, I was like, yes, this is (laughs) awesome. So the next week I actually started my first, um, you know, guiding gig on a Creek. I'd never fished. And how did that go? It was awesome. It led into 17 years of, you know, of, of guiding and, and fishing. Yeah. <laughs> so it was awesome. Were you intimidated at all um, with, you know, with it being your first gig out and what have you? Well, I'd been to school on how to guide people, you know, maybe not so much on the fly fishing. And I was a little bit nervous about the hatches and the bugs and where to go. But I think I just trusted my instinct and I figured that I loved it so much that how could my passion not rub on someone else for the day, you know? So I I think that I just took a chance. So that summer went by and I decided that I loved it so much I wanted to try to gain more knowledge. And so there was a program offered up at Smithers and it was um, based... Which is where? uh, Smithers, British Columbia. It's all the steelheaders know about Smithers, um, the Bulkley, the Kispiox, the Maurice, uh, all the rivers up in Smithers, northern British Columbia. Which is going to be north and west of Fernie. Yeah, way up. Yeah. Long, long drive. Yeah. And uh, so I went up there and took a 
fly fishing program, you could be either be a fly fishing guide or a rafting guide. And so there was about 13 of us that were uh, mentored by um, a steelheading guide up there, Tony Harris and Bob Clay, who builds bamboo rods. And they taught me how to tie flies and how to read the water and, you know, more about the bugs, how to drive a jet boat, you know, how to be a, a proper fly fishing guide. And I was just thought it was the coolest thing. And so I, I, I decided back to Fernie I go for another season and let's see how this continues to go. So in other words, you went up there and you were honing your trade. Yeah. Yeah. And when you went back for that season in Fernie after hanging out with those guys and learning from those legends, really, right? Yeah. I mean, did you at that point feel, okay, I'm really getting some momentum now as an actual guy, as a guide, I've really come a long ways. I think so. I, I mean, I didn't really learn how to row a drift boat from, from, you know, up there. We row boats on the Elk River, and they were driving jet boats up there. Mm-hmm. But as far as reading the water and the, and the bugs, you know, different hatches on different rivers, but it opened up my eyes what to look for, you know, as far as, as the bug life and, and really learning to read the water. I think the one thing that I took away and all the schooling was you learn to read the water, mm-hmm. you're good. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it focused me more on, on what, you know, where to continue, you know, my learning curve. Cause I didn't, you, you can never stop learning when you're fly fishing, especially on new rivers all the time. Yeah. And I mean, even today you're still learning stuff. I'm sure. Exactly. Different that's fisheries, the, different fish. That's the beauty of it. So back to Fernie for a season. And then at what point did you start your own business and decide you're going to open up Fernie Fly Fishing? Well, I worked for Kootenai Fly Shop for many years, and then I ended up actually having a serious back injury and spending 10 weeks in the hospital. Um, I was a lifty and had a skiing accident, and so I had to take a year off of off of guiding and fishing and rehab and learn to walk again. And so when I came back to Fernie, um, I started working for another the other fly shop in town and worked there for many years. And I always just wanted my own business. I wanted my own accountability. I wanted to do my own thing, and I wanted to be on the water all the time. That was my focus. Mm-hmm. The fly shops are fun, but I just wanted to guide. And so uh, Fernie has classified waters, and so you can't just come up and start an outfitting business. You have to buy an existing business um, or basically buy an existing business. And so Rod Days came up for sale, and I heard about them coming up for sale on a Friday, and I bought them on a Friday. And um, the previous owner was from Fernie Fly Fishing, and so I bought his Rod Days and, and kind of started my own branding and my own business, and that was six years ago. So this is our sixth season that I've been owning owning it. And he had a fly shop, so Fernie Fly Fishing had a fly shop, but I decided... I don't want to be in the shop. I want to be on the water. So we are just a guide outfitting service that works with a local fly shop. You know, Fernie's a small town, and the way that you're going to be successful is working with everybody else in, in town. Yeah, for sure. And and don't you feel like, you know, maybe not up there, but a lot of places when you have multiple fly shops, there's always competition between the fly shops, and it just kind of creates issues that you probably don't <laughs> even want to get into. Whereas, Absolutely. Whereas if you're kind of friends with everyone, it might be a 
better situation. Absolutely. You know, we focus on, um, you know, taking people on the water for their day. And there are two existing fly shops in town and they both carry great product, great selections of flies. And so I didn't want to be one of their competition. You know, even today, I work with all the outfitters in the valley to help big groups come. And so it's a lot easier to work with everybody in the valley. You know, that way everybody gets work. You know, we're all doing the, the same thing. But yeah, having a fly shop, you're stuck in the fly shop and not on the water. Yeah. Let's give give a little geographic lesson, a little geography lesson here on Fernie, where it's located. And uh, most of your clients that come to fish with you, how will they access to get to you? So Fernie is a little small mountain town, three hours west of Calgary. And we're about two, hour, two hours up from Kalispell, Kalispell, Montana. So we are right, you know, in the corner of British Columbia, the bottom corner of BC in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, most guests that, that come fly into Kalispell, rent a car and drive up to Fernie. Um, most of our clientele is from the States, uh, but if there's people that find it easier, they come into to Calgary and drive three hours in, into Calgary or into Fernie from Calgary. Sure. And what do your guests need to have? Obviously a passport, I think, in order to come in in and out of Canada and then into the U.S., correct? Yep. They need their passport. Okay. And so it's about a two-hour drive from Kalispell to Fernie. And, you know, it's been a while since I've been in Fernie. Tell me about Fernie itself. Well, Fernie is typically known as a ski town. So if you love to ski, then... You know, Fernie is a, it's known as steep and deep. So in the winter times, you know, when people aren't fishing, you know, they're skiing. Has that ski mountain really grown as far as lifts and what have you? A few lifts over the last 15 years, they've added a a few, but it still remains a pretty, you know, it's busy. Fernie triples in in the wintertime and it's a, you know, quite a hub for, for skiing and it seems, that more and more people are discovering the summer activities in Fernie and what was a very quiet season is now becoming busier. Yeah. Much busier. You know, we noticed that too. It, it, you know, in a lot of these ski towns here in Colorado and all through the Rockies, it's funny how it seems more and more these, the summer's getting busier and busier. Whereas, you know, even this town of Carbondale and this area, used to be pretty sleepy in the summer and it's it's bustling well i think a lot of people too want to play in their own backyard with the way that the economy is we find a lot of people coming right from montana or even from over from calgary i think it's you know cheaper to you know just to drive up to fernie uh, and fish in your own backyard than disperse to other places in the world i mean that's what that was that's what we've seen for the growth yeah and um tell me about the canadian dollar versus the u.s dollar as far as you know Typically, what is the conversion rate and it roughly? I mean, it's a little bit more, is it not? Well, I, I, recently the Canadian dollar has been growing. I th- I, I think we, we have all our prices in American oh, you dollars do? okay. because ninety nine percent of our clientele is American, okay. and so it fluctuates. You know, last fall it was really good. You know, if you're taking the exchange rate, yeah. and it's still really good for um, for so five fifty. U.S. for a float trip is about seven fifteen Canadian. Okay. So a couple hundred dollars. So it's actually, it's worth Americans coming up to sure, fish sure. In, in Fernie. Sure. Tell me about the waters you fish around Fernie. 
beautiful. Oh, they're incredible. <laughs> Sometimes I like to say that it's God's gift to angler some of the creeks that are around. If For you're sure. a, a dry fly, you know, fisherman, then it is the best dry fly fishing in Canada. I, I fished in a lot of different places in Canada, and there is a diverse fishery throughout. But if you're looking for consistent dry fly fishing, that's what Fernie Area and the Elk Valley offers. Um, we have a lot of um, small tributaries that feed into the main Elk River. So the Elk River is 220 kilometers long, and it starts up above um, a town called Elkford. And it flows down through a whole bunch of towns uh, before it reaches Lake Kukanusa. And along its journey, it's got a lot of feeders that come in. And so we fish a lot of those feeder streams. They're clear, they're freestone, they're beautiful, prolific bug hatches. I think there's quite a few mines on the upper part of um, the Elk River. So some of the nutrients, I think that they must enhance some of the bug life, you know, some of the outspill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was amazed how clear the water is. Obviously, it's not all the time, but it's just gin clear water. Uh, it was when we were there. It's, it still is, um, especially some of the higher mountain streams like the Wigwam River. You're getting back into the backcountry, um, and it is clear and it's cold. The rocks are purple and blue, and you're looking down and you're like, holy cow, it's like a jewelry box in there yeah. with all the different colors. So it's pretty incredible. You know, I think the upper Roaring Fork, like say from like um, Jaffe, Jaffe Park down with the coloration of the rocks, it's it has a similar type of feel. It does. And it reminds me a little bit of the Michelle Creek, which we fish in yeah. Fernie. You know, the um, up by Jaffe, you know, the trees are a little bit more closed in. Yeah. You feel like you're on a smaller, intimate creek. That's how a lot of the creeks around the Fernie area feel. And there's a lot of old growth cedars. So some of the backcountry um, streams where there's been no fires or, or logging, there's these huge, huge old, old growth cedars that, you know, Hang over. Hang over and create small little pockets for the fish with their roots coming into the river. So it's pretty cool. So you have the Elk River is kind of the main drainage, and then you have the tributaries. And those tributaries, I think we fished Michelle Creek and the St. Mary's and the Wigwam. Um, what other what other waters do you have there? So the <clears throat> Elk River coming down has the Michelle Creek that comes in. There's the Alexander Creek, which is a smaller creek that feeds into the Michelle Creek. Uh, there's also the Fording River, which is on the Upper Elk. And then coming down, you have the Wigwam that feeds in, which is known for its bull trout fishing. And then in the Wigwam, you have a creek called the Lodgepole coming in, so there's another feeder. The St. Mary's is over about an hour away from Fernie, and it feeds into um, the Kootenai River. Um, the Bull River um, isn't a tributary of the elk, but it's another classified um, water that we do fish, and it's up in behind the Fernie area. And, and the fish primarily in the elk river systems, there's a ton of cutthroat, correct? Lots of cutties, yeah. yeah. Wild West Slope cutthroat uh, trout. And they average between 16 and 18 you know, they're, they are definitely worthy of their, of their size and they have big shoulders and they're happy to come up for, for the dry. They can be tricky, you know, cutthroat are typically, some people think that they're the easiest fish to catch, but you know, when, when you have a hatch coming off or you have five hatches coming off at once, sometimes those cutties are honed in on one specific hatch. So the fun part about fishing the Elk River and its tributaries is that 
it, it's a little, it can be techy, you know? So fishing some of the smaller creeks like the Alexander or the Michelle or the Wigwam, you'll get a green drake catch coming off and you've got five different types of green drakes. You've got yellow sallies and you have blueing olive. And what are they eating? You know, are they eating, you know, the emerger or are they eating the dry? Or are they eating the cripple? And so for somebody that is really into the different stages of specifically mayflies, it can be a really, really fun fishery. And what what's your season lifespan there as far as, you know, it's a huge prolific dry fly fishing but it's a fairly short it's season. Very what, short. Are, what are your months that are the best? So the river opens up to the general public June 15th. And typically that's pretty high water. Um, everything is running. Uh, once you get into July, August, and September, then the fishing is, is good. And October, you're in mountain weather. You get the October caddises coming off, but your days of fishing are much shorter. So the, prime... the water start to muddy up and stuff too? No, not at all. Fishing can be absolutely amazing throughout the winter. You know, it closes March 31st to June 15th, but okay. because Fernie gets so cold, you might not be able to fish it in the winter. It might be iced over, but if you have a warmer temperature year, the fishing can be absolutely amazing in March, beautiful days and, and the river's not frozen. You're fishing, you know, small little black stones that are coming off. Um, but for guiding and when most of the traffic comes, it's really short, July, August, and September. Let's talk about um, regulations there in BC. Um, can you use multiple flies? Can you use strike indicators? Single What's... hook barbless. Single hook barbless. Single hook barbless. And there used to be a rule on the wigwam that it was fly fishing only. So no strike indicators, no in, no external weight. Everything had to be. Um, so the it's... fly even had to be weighted. The fly, you the, any add weight. weight. Yeah, any weight on the fly had to be an integral part of the fly. But I believe it was three years ago they lifted that ban to allow for more people to have a better experience. So instead of keeping it just fly fishing only, they opened it up so that more families would be able to fish the area um, and, I, I guess, a diverse fishery. There. So does that mean spin fishing too? They, you can spin fish. But it's really? still single hook barbless okay. um, on, on all the streams. Have you noticed in the three years, have you noticed because they've allowed spin fishing, has it affected the fish at all? I, I have noticed. Absolutely. Yeah. I've noticed um, you would go into a hole and you would never have known that anybody was ever there. Um, and now when they've changed the regulations, you go down and you see people yanking the fish. I've seen dead fish on the bank. I've seen, you know big jigs stuck on the, you know, on the logs. Um, and I mean, Hey, there's nothing wrong with spin fishing at all, but I think it just opened it up to a broader, um, group of people to come in and fish, um, where before it seemed that it was a lot more, um, pristine, but to answer back to that, the government decided to implement more classification on the river. So they've only allowed a certain amount of um, public use days on the river. So they've recognized that there was a problem and there's an angling management plan that um, is instilled across the Elk Valley. And so they said, well, this is only how many people can come and fish. So it is actually sold out for this season. It sells out within hours of the licenses coming available because they only give out so many to the general public. Uh, okay, I understand. And so as an outfitter, then you have to purchase or you have to be allotted so many days on each river and what have you. And then 
you can then take those days and have clients come up and use those days to fish with you, right? Exactly. So each outfitter in town is allotted a certain amount of days on the Elk River, the Bull River, the St. Mary, the Michelle, and the Wigwam. And those are each classified in their own. So each outfitter can only take as many as they've been grandfathered in um, because the government doesn't generally um, bring up new new days mm-hmm. um, for, for bidding or, or for allotment. So what each outfitter has is kind of what they've had since they put in the classified water system. And I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but so you're going to be headed up here pretty soon. And when will your season like really kick off where you're really guiding every day yourself? Um, well, this year I'm not guiding because okay. uh, we are expecting another baby in November. Congratulations. And so I thought about guiding, but it might have been a little bit awkward mm-hmm. for guests, me pulling up the anchor and rowing <laughs> the boat. But I'm totally capable of it, but I just decided it probably wasn't the best idea. But I have a great um, team of guides that have guided in the valley for a long time. We've got some new guides that have joined in. Um, we typically do a lot of big group trips, um, people coming up. So we do work with a lot of the other outfitters in town. Um, as soon as I get to Fernie on the 12th, my first few days, we've got 35 people coming to fish with us for a corporate trip. Um, and then on average, we run about, you know, three or four boats a day. We're a much smaller outfitter um, business. And so gives us a little bit more room to be a little bit more personable with our lunches and meeting um, and taking care of our, our guests. And so we have a few trips left this season, but generally we are booked almost a year in advance. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, bouncing back to the fish, cutthroat, um, I've obviously, I've, I've been up and fished around in the Elk Valley and I've spent some time um, in Jackson, Wyoming and fished for cutthroat and um, I want to get your take on cutthroat as far as their movement in the water column. One thing I noticed is they seemed like a fish that didn't move, you know, this way very much. They seemed to move up and down and they would come from deep and take a dry on top. Whereas maybe our rainbows and browns, you know, might move four or five feet over to grab a fly. What, what have you noticed on cutthroat and their behavior on taking dry flies? They definitely move up and down the water column. <clears throat> and that's why they always say for cutties, have a long drift, a drag-free drift. And so they typically find a spot in the river. That's where they live. And they are opportunistic feeders. And so sometimes I found if you're actually not drifting your fly perfectly in their feeding lane, they're not going to come up for it. So in other words, they're... It's got to, they've got to be looking at it for a long time. And then once they know it's right, they'll come from a long ways down. They they can. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, they'll just see it and take it right away. But typically they like to have a a longer drift and a longer look at it, you know, in a drag free drift, you can put the same fly over the same fish and have a drag over it for five times and you keep mending. And once you mend that fly and have a perfect drift, he'll take it. You know, so a lot of it's men, 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 yeah. men. There's a lot of mending in the dry fly fishing there. For sure. Um, how common is it for a cutthroat to, you know, follow the fly back, follow it, follow it, follow it, and then take it? Or is that pretty rare? No, they'll do that. Um, and you can also get lots of rejections where they'll come right up and be like, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. And dive back down. Yeah. Um, Break your heart. Yeah. You're like, come on. Or they'll come up and completely miss it. You know, or they've obviously thought it was a different fly. So then you change it up. You know, I find myself changing flies a lot when I'm guiding because they can be 
you know, is very specific on what fly that they are taking. Let's talk about that. Um, in that situation where you have a fish that say has come up and, and rejected you a couple times or say once, um, do you get rejected once and immediately switch the fly or, you know, twice and then you switch the fly and kind of what's your mindset and are you, are you specifically going to another bug? Are you going smaller or are you switching a pattern completely? I guess it depends on, um, for me guiding, I guess it depends on the guest drift. You know, if I thought that the drift was great and there was no drag in it and the fish came up um, and rejected it because it wasn't the fly that he wanted, then I will immediately change it. But depending on the way that the, the, the drift is, sometimes I'll say, okay, I want you to get it up there just a little bit closer, give it a really good man and give him a little bit longer look and get it right in that feeding lane right there. And if he, if he takes it, then awesome. And if he doesn't take it or comes up to reject it, yeah, I change it immediately. I, I, I can't handle. Do you typically go down in size? It seems like I find when a fish rejects, I, it's just, I don't know if it's human nature, but I'm like, I got to go smaller. <laughs> like they're, you know, they think the fly is too big, but I know cutthroat, sometimes they like those big giant flies. Well, and sometimes it's not necessarily a different size, but a different stage in the life cycle of the bug. And so sometimes you'll be fishing a green drake and just the way that you see the fish come up, because when a fish is coming up for a dry fly, they'll either like, or, or for an, you know, they'll come up for an emerger and they won't quite break the surface or they'll just break the surface a little, or they'll come up mouthwise wide open. And so depending on also how you see them take, then you decide whether or not are you going to completely change the bug or are you going to change the stage in the life cycle. And more than um, often than not, I will change the life cycle. And so sometimes even a cripple, you know, with a little bit of flash in it just to, you know, hey, this one's not as as good as that really nice green drake I just presented you. This one looks a little bit, you know, wounded. What what do you think it is about the cripple or it may it may be bounced back just for the listeners that maybe aren't as um, familiar. When you say cripple, you mean uh, a a bug that's not a perfect specimen, a, a bug that's you know broken wing or something. Correct. It, Right. It's in between. It's emerging. So with the mayfly, unlike any other bug, the mayfly will start to come up off the bottom. You know, stoneflies will make their way over to the side of the bank and they will hatch out of their shell. Um, And mayflies will actually just start to rise where they are in the middle of the pool and they will wiggle out of their shell and come up. And mayflies can't fly away until their wings are dry. And so if it's windy, uh, overcast, rainy, that's when mayflies like to hatch because it's less than ideal conditions. So a cripple is when it's stuck in the middle of its nymph stage and coming out into the dry, or you're right, when the wing is kind of down, just definitely less than less than perfect. And Do you feel like the fish know that that's a sitting duck? In other words, it's, or, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a sitting duck because they can't fly away. Exactly. So like, and you know, sometimes when there's such a prolific hatch coming off, the fish are feeding in such a crazy frenzy that just the way that that cripple lies in the water with a little bit of flash on it sometimes just gets their attention. And it's different than some of the other bugs happening. And sometimes the flash is, is like a wing shuck, right? They usually have a little flash to them. Exactly. And so what, what you're saying is you sometimes will switch to that to make the fish say that there's a sitting duck, I'm going to eat that. Yes. And if all else fails, I always go to like a blueing olive puff emerger. That's that's your (laughs) go-to. I love it. Those are the kind of tips I like to get. Um, 
I want to go back to something you said about watching the fish as they're rising, whether they get their whole mouth up, whether you see their tail. Can you kind of walk walk me through watching a fish and you can tell what stage that it's eating at? Well, typically if the fish is at the bottom of the river and they're just coming up halfway between the water column, you know that they're not eating a dry. You know that they got to be eating something underneath the surface. And depending on how far they're coming up out of that water column, you know that maybe they're eating something different. So on the bottom half of the water column, typically they're eating the nymphs. And then when they start to rise up and come from halfway in the water column up to the top and they're just kind of going underneath the surface and all you can see is their fin breaking the surface, then you know that they're eating an emerger. You know, And if they're in the middle of the pool, you know that typically they're probably eating a mayfly emerger because... If they're eating the big stoneflies, they're going to be tucked in tight to the bank, right? Or if they're eating a caddis, they're going to be tucked in closer to the bank. But if there's a mayfly hatch coming off, then they're typically going to be feeding in the middle of a pool somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so then if you see them, you know, coming up with their nose and going down, you know that they're eating dries and emergers because the way that they're rising, they're not, sometimes they're just under or right over. If they're coming up with their mouth wide open. That's a dry. That is definitely them taking something right off the surface. Right. Yeah. So it's important to kind of watch what the fish behavior is doing, correct? I mean, you can't just be fishing a dry. If you see an porpoise, you know that maybe every once in a while they might take the dry, but that particular fish is probably focused in on the emerger and they're not even looking at dries and you may not, you could float over them a thousand times and they're probably not going to And it. that happens a lot on some of the smaller creeks where there is lots of different hatches of different mayflies. And so a lot of people like to just run to the creek bank and start fishing. You know, number one, your shadow's over the, over the water and you're probably going to scare the fish. And so I often, all the time, I come to the creek and I watch what's going on and just take a visual, even on my walk into the creek bed, you know, is there bugs, you know, in the trees? Is there anything on the branches? What, what's happening? So before I even get to the creek, my senses are what's going on. And when I get to the creek bed, I, I watch and I see if there's any fish rising and that'll determine what fly I decide to, to put on. I'm not, I often don't, I, I don't just walk up to the creek and put on whatever fly I think will work. You know, it's an educated guess yeah. as always. Uh, can you tell by watching a fish rise, you know, splashy rise, just a nose, a sipper, can you tell, or can you kind of tell me what you think if you see a splashy rise, what they're, what they're feeding on specifically? And if you just see a real, you know, a nose and just a real, you know, perfect little pattern, can you talk about that a little bit? It depends if you're walking, waiting, or if you're drifting. And so those are two differences. When you're drifting, you know, often you're just going straight on down. So you're not quite sure what's happening. There could be different hatches going on at different parts. But when you're in a drift boat, you're watching where are they eating? Are they in the middle of the run? Are they up against the bank? Is it a hot day? What's the weather like? You you said when you're drifting, is that what you meant? When you're when you're in, in a, a boat. When a yeah. boat, yeah. In a boat drifting down. Right. Um and you're kinda of making decisions on the fly and so you're also making decisions on on weather, um, and where you see fish rising. When you're walking waiting, you have a little bit more time to observe what the fish is actually doing. You know, so if a fish is tucked in close to a log jam and he's sipping we could be taking ants right there because there's no other hatch coming off. So if you don't see any bugs coming off, what's the next um, fly that you think 
that they would be eating in the location that they're rising, you know, and so that could be fun, you know, taking all those elements and figuring out what are they eating? I mean, that's most important. If you can figure out what they're eating and then get it to them, you yeah, know, you've got it licked. Then you, you, you know, that's a pretty good combo. Yeah. Pretty good start at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You mentioned ants and I remember when I fished up there, I probably used ants more up there than anywhere I've ever used. And quite honestly, I should probably start fishing ants a lot more down here in the lower 48. Um, because I remember up there, they were eating ants like crazy. It seemed like little red cinnamon colored ants, black ants. T- talk to me about ants. Yeah. The sparkle, um, I think it's deer hair sparkle ant is one of my favorite ants in a size 14. I got a whole box of different ants. What color do you like? Black. 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 Sometimes, you know, Idlewild used to make a two-tone that had a little bit of purple on the butt, which seemed to always work really well. Hmm. Um, there's also ant hatches that come off and sometimes they're the bigger ants or sometimes they're the tiny, tiny little ants with the little, you know, the little wings. And so you're using a size 22 ant that you can't even see, but you just trust the, t- trust the take and trust the drift. So... You know, that's why you need a little bit of an entourage of ants. But it's also hot, and the Elk River has a lot of log jams on it and a lot of debris. And so, and the cutthroats love to live underneath those logs. So it is a great combo with the cutties and the ants. And the ants do work amazing up on the waters up there. Um, a lot of times, is the ant you're fishing, can you see it, or are you mainly fishing for the rise form? And if they rise, you pretty much bet they're on your ant you set, or... Yeah, and it depends on what ant you're using, if it actually has a good visible post. You know, the high-vis posts always seem to, to help. Um, but if they're the tiny little ants, then, yeah, you are trusting the take and the rise and knowing that your fly is in that parameter that oh, it's got to be mine. And all you can do is set and try again. Right. Um, you said something there. Are you more apt to fish an ant pattern when it's hot and sunny and, and warm than if it were cold and cloudy? Yeah, if it's cold and cl- cloudy, you're typically going to be fishing a little bit more, uh, you know, mayfly patterns and caddis. The Elk River has, uh, you know, awesome caddis hatch too. So, you know, my box consists of stonefly patterns, mayfly patterns, and um, ants, um, and I think I said different caddises. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's something I'm going to try around here on the ranch. Um, I've been noticing fishing here, ants are crawling all over me. And I think maybe people listening, if if you are fishing, and it didn't even dawn on me until you just mentioned it, that I'll bet you they'd eat the they, fire they, out of ants they, here. They do. Yeah, they do. They you do. can you can attest to that. <laughs> <Me> <laughs> I had them crawling all over me the other day. Uh, good stuff. Uh, let's talk about um, sunshine and cloud, specifically, say, on the elk if you could draw up a perfect day, um, would you prefer to have clouds or would you prefer to have sunshine? A mix of both would be the perfect day with some rain. So, you know, if you get out in the morning, mornings are always typically a little cool. And so cutthroat trout don't like to get moving early. So a lot of fishermen think that you have to get out there and get on the water really early, but especially in the Elk Valley, you can sleep in and take your time. Um, as the sun starts to warm up the water, then the fish start to move. Uh, so that's when streamer fishing can be really fun in the mornings on the Elk River. Um, and then typically as the day gets a little bit warmer, then you'll start to see the hatches. There'll be some midges and the ants will start to work and mostly the water warms up and they actually want to move. Um, and then if you get a little bit of rain, that really brings off the blue wing olives and the green drake. So, you know, if you have a beautiful morning and then you have like an overcast rain shower, then you're getting into 
you know, prolific blueing olive hatch and the river just starts to bubble and into the evening, you know, if you have a nice cool, a cool evening, which is typical for the Rocky mountains, then you start to switch to a caddis, um, you know, or a little Cahill, you'll start to get the Cahills coming off in the, in the evening, um, and the caddis. And so having a mix when it's really, really hot, you're fishing ants and hoppers and sweating it out. And yeah, I think all anglers kind of like a little bit of mix in the day. What is it? Why do you think the mayflies, you know, whether it's a blue-winged olive, whether it's, you know, PMD is kind of like sun, but, but what, what is it about drakes and, and blue-winged olives that are, they love the clouds? They love, the, you, you know, if you get cloud cover, even around here, you go out and you'll find mayflies. Well, I think because it's, it's variable weather and it's typically when you have clouds and overcast you get a little bit of wind with it and so I think it makes it harder for the fish to eat them and that's when they find it's the ideal time to start hatching and coming off is when the conditions aren't perfect and they have a better chance of survival okay that's a good point um let's talk about bull trout uh as far as I know, bull trout in the United States, I don't think is legal anywhere to fish for them. Is, is that right? I don't think so. But in BC, it's 100% legal? You are allowed to fish for bull trout in BC. And our neck of the woods is very special because we have uh, a very healthy bull trout fishery. Um, and the Elk River feeds into Lake Kukanusa, and there's a dam um, in Elko, which is at the very bottom of the... Um, of the floatable sections of the Elk River. So the bull trout uh, don't come up into the upper part of the Elk River. There are resident bull trout in the upper elk that you can fish for. But the ones that run, that live in in Lake Kukanusa where the elk feeds into, they start to run uh, and come up for their spawn. So, you know, over the last forever years, I've always found it really fascinating to chase the bull trout run and find out where they are at different times of the year. You know, like rem- when you say run, I mean like hundreds or thousands or yeah, and and how far will they come up? Well, they will come from Lake Kukanusa and they will come start coming up the Lower Elk River, and then the wigwam feeds into um, the Elk River, so they will start working their way um, up the wigwam, and the wigwam turns into a huge canyon. Uh, and then they get up into the canyon, and then they go even past the canyon into the headwaters of the wigwam and spawn, and they spawn in the fall. Um, and depending on how the water levels are, that dictates when the bull trout start to move. So typically June 15th is really high, kind of dirty water, but that's kind of initiating them to start stacking up, um, you know, where the Elk River flows flows in. But it can be hard fishing because it's really big right there. Um, and so as they start to run up, they all run in, in different schools. It's not like they're all running at once. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know. So it's like waves. Exactly. Waves, kind of like a, a steelhead run, mm-hmm. I, you know. And so they're running in waves, and we, we chase them on their way up. And so one day you'll be fishing for them on the lower elk at a pool, and you're, they're stacked. And the next day they're gone. And so then you go up further up into the, you know, elk, and and then they'll be stacked at the at the wigwam. And those access points are really, really tough them mm-hmm. uh, and then when they start making their way up into the canyon that's typically around the end of june or july into the beginning of august and that is when i run my trips for the uh, bull trout is in those last two weeks of july and first two weeks of august after that i don't guide for them and i don't offer trips for them i don't believe that they Leave should be alone. i don't believe that they should be fished for in the upper stretches of the wigwam past the canyons i think that when they come in they're on a really long journey and 
and bull trout are not interested in eating when they're on their spawning run. So they spend all fall and winter and spring, you know, gorging on kokanee and getting fat to make their summer run up. And so by the time you fish for them in the canyon, you're going to get silver bullets and you're going to get feisty fish at the beginning of the season. But start coming in further into August and into September, you know, they're they're all super colored and lanky and mushy and it's almost, it's unethical to fish for yeah. them. And so that's when we do our trips. Now, when they start to run... Before that. We do all our trips before yeah. that, exactly. And then we leave them alone for the summer. Now, people can still fish for them into August. It's just as a company and what I believe in, I believe they should be left alone. And mm-hmm. we'll fish for them when they're prime, when it's the best fishing for them. When it's good for them. And then they can do their thing. Yeah. Um, they're amazing fish. They are really fun. And they are, they're tricky, you know. And you're fishing for them in really small water. Um, you know, you can streamer fish for them, swing for them. You can nymph for them. And they'll even take the dry, which is pretty fun. A lot of people... You know, don't think that you can catch a bull trout on the dry, but green drakes hat starts coming off, and here comes the bull trout eating your green drakes, which mm. is pretty cool. That is. So cool. then, as the summer goes, um, once they're done their spawn, they drop down, and the kokanee start to run up, and so they meet, and the bull trout are starving, so they start gorging on kokanee. Wait, just just to be clear, so the bull trout run up, and they don't die like salmon; they no, come back. They come back. Okay, and so then they're converging with kokanee. And it's, it's a, probably a mess. So late, um, late September, uh, that's when that, that happens. And that's another good time to start fishing for them is when the kokanee run comes up and they come down because they are literally gorging. They are, kokanee are coming out of their mouths. Um, and the Kootenai River uh, is known for really good fishing for bull trout in the fall um, and the lower stretches of, of the wigwam when they come down. And then you get a bull trout that is like, 21 to 25 but his belly is deeper than his length because he's, he's, he's full just, of kokanee yeah you so what will you use big streamers huge huge streamers like the size of your your like the color of kokanee you would, no you can use white and gray it's pretty good purple you know um again i think sometimes it's about the swing and the action of your fly agitate some kind of yeah it makes them mad well that's how it is at the beginning of the season they're just like that's really not cool i'm gonna eat that you yeah. know that's why that's how eat- we caught them when we when we hiked down to the wigwam we were kind of swinging flies and jigging them in front of their face and man sometimes they just attack they, they attack and they fight like crazy and you, you know some people don't know but they live in a lake and so what do lake fish eat Fish. You know, they'll eat, well, and halger mites and chronomids. And so a lot of the times you have to think outside of the box um, and start fishing with flies that you might not typically think that So in other would... words, flies that they're seeing all year round in the lake, you're fishing for because they're like, oh, that's, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. I okay. That, I learned so, something there. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Big, huge Kaufman stones will work, you know, um, and it's always better to have no no bobber and just feel it and swing it like when you're swinging a steelhead. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of watch the line, feel the line. Yeah, and it's thing. a little bit more of a challenge too. You're not just like watch the bobber. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of boring, just yeah. watching the bobber. And that's why we don't do a lot. I don't do a lot of uh, nymph fishing in yeah. the area. You just clean I, up. I was going to ask you about that. Um, <laughs> you know, we're here in Colorado and obviously, you know, bobbers two three flies oh four goodness. flies Seriously. five flies i mean i've guys, seen that's rigs serious. that's crazy you know five fly rigs and me too um, i was like that exists yeah i mean it looks like a christmas tree <laughs> Seriously. Uh, do you think sometimes well 
are there times in BC when if you could fish dry dropper or fish multiple flies, it would just be a, you just clean them up? And you, you are you kind of happy that it's just a one fly? I'm very deal? happy it's a one fly only and barbless. I mean, with so much pressure uh, on a fishery, it's not like a lot of pressure. I come down here to the States and, and I find out what pressure really is. Yeah. I mean, we are spoiled up there. Yeah. You know, the guides up there, we have it pretty good, you know, and, um, there's, there's not as much pressure on our rivers um, as there are on the rivers down here. And absolutely a dry dropper would clean up. You know, I've heard that there's studies that a fishery that they use nymphs on, um, the the cutties will not be as apt to come up to the surface because they'll just be wanting to eat on the bottom. And you, we do nymph. Of course we nymph. I mean, it's not like we don't we don't nymph. It's just, if you can dry fly fish and catch them on the dry, that's way more fun than yeah. nymphing. But on, on cold mornings, uh, when the fish aren't rising or when things are happening, then yeah, you, you put on, you know, a little, a little stone fly and, and you'll catch, you'll catch fish or, or streamer fishing is, is, you know, really productive as well. But I'm really glad that it's single hook barbless. I came down here to Colorado and Steven is a fishing guide here. And I was like, holy, how many flies are you going to put on? Oh, yeah. I'll get that tangled in one cast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, it's, 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 <laughs> you know, the Americans, we can kind of overcook <laughs> things at times. Uh, I've learned a lot about nymph fishing, uh, fishing down here on the waters down here in Colorado. So, you know, it's just, it's nothing's wrong with it. It's just a different type of fly fishing, you yeah. know, and they're still eating bugs and sure. you're still fly fishing. It's just different. Yeah. Steve and I talked about um, fishing in the Gunnison Gorge. <clears throat> That's incredible. And I've been fortunate this summer to go down there three times. Oh, and my just goodness. just fallen in love with it. Um, have you been down? I have. He took me for my birthday a couple of years ago, and we did, just him and I did a, a two nights. What did you think? Oh, it was incredible. Every rap, every rapid we went to, he's like, you could row this. And I was like, no way. <laughs> There's not a way I'm going through cable in the <laughs> yeah. rock garden. I'll just throw my fly up against the bank or up against the rocks. And he's like, right to the splash mark. Yeah. And you're like, splat. oh my gosh. Yeah. Within the first 20 minutes, I caught the biggest brown and the biggest rainbow I've ever caught. I was crazy. And he's been doing it forever. And so he's, I was pretty lucky to go down with him. Yeah. Spoiled. And you also, um, in the spring, I believe, run and work and ramrod at um, Guanaja. Yes. So I am Stephen's co-pilot of, of operations. We're a very small family-run operation. Um, and on the state side, there's Stephen, his sister, who um, is our godsend, who takes care of all of our bookings. And for both companies, she works. She does all the bookings for me, for Fernie, and does the bookings for Guanaja. And then Stephen and I head down there from January to June um, every year, um, you know, and, and transition back up at to here. I used to have a property management company in Fernie. And when I met Steven, he had a guiding operation here in Colorado. I had a guiding operation in Fernie. He had his fly fishing operation in Honduras and I had a property management company. And so we decided which one wasn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> that was an easy decision. That was an easy decision. Absolutely. So we spend most of our, the season down in Guanaja, which is um, a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a special place. Yeah, he did an amazing podcast. Um, from your perspective, tell me about it. Holy smokes, it was probably the busiest season of our lives. You know, the amount of things that we um, accomplished down there. I think that my career has transitioned um, from 
being just focused on guiding and guiding into helping um, fish for change, you know, and helping make a difference in the fishery um, and making your cast count. So what we're involved in down in Guanaja is it means a lot to the families down here or down there. And it also means a lot to us. So I feel really fortunate to be part of the operation. You know, I help in, I help at the lodge um, in the kitchen and the rooms and the front of house and client care and you know, I was running a, a full lodge down there while Stephen was at the Faraway Keys with a full lodge. And then he went to Belize. So at certain times of this season, we had, you know, over 20 people in three different places, you know, Belize and the Faraway Keys and Guanaja. And the behind the scenes logistics of everything that we did this season is pretty incredible to be able to pull off. Yeah, I'm sure when you guys finally got up here to Colorado, you were just like, lock the door, and we need just a little bit of breathing room just to kind of just debrief a little bit. But we didn't even have a chance. We got back, and Stephen started guiding in the canyon the next day. Um, And so it's always go, go, go between between the fisheries. And I I guess that we hope for a, a stable life in one in one kind of place but traveling around and chasing the fish and the fisheries it, it's fun and Guanaja is a special place that you can't really um you can't really get away from so as busy as it is and as much as is going on there the people down there um are, are so fantastic the fishery is super fun the lodge is beautiful I mean and, and we run a student program down there that Stephen probably talked about mm-hmm. um a sustainable development student program. So the amount of change that is um, happening is where we want to focus a lot of our time is down there. Yeah, that's really neat. I, you know, I could just, the passion that you used to talk about it and the look in his eye and the passion when he was talking about it is pretty awesome and pretty rare, to be honest with you, to see, um, I don't want to say that people don't have passion, but it's really awesome to see two people that are kind of so focused on a common goal and as incredible as the fishing and all of that, I could see in talking with Steve, how he really, really cares about the people. And to him, it's way more fishing's great, but it's way about the people and, and, and way about the bigger picture. It, it is. And how many fisheries do you go to that, um, Look at me. Look at the fish I've caught. That's cool. Hey, yeah. I've. But how cool is it to go to a place where you can actually make help make change? And and so that's what we're trying to do with the fishery that we have down there. And what Steve has done for the local people is really commendable. Really yeah. commendable. Yeah, that's awesome. So awesome. it's cool to be. I'm lucky. I you know I found my dream guy, and it just so happens that he's also in the fly fishing in- industry. So you know how lucky are both of us. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a it's a great uh, combination for yeah. sure. Uh, well, Becky, it's been awesome having you on here. Um, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can find you, how they can contact you if they want to talk to you about a trip. And, um, would you, would you do that? Yeah. If anybody wants to go fishing, we have a a few spots. We had a cancellation. Um, we would love to host, host you up in Fernie. It's a beautiful place for more than just fishing for hiking and biking and, family oriented. Uh, my website is fernieflyfishing.com. 
I'm also on Instagram at Fernie Fly Fishing. My personal Instagram account for the adventures that Stephen and I do is Adventuring Mama Duck, Adventuring Mama. Um, and if you want to book a trip in Fernie, uh, our email is info at fernieflyfishing.com. Uh, and we're also on Facebook at Fernie Fly Fishing. And for the listeners, Fernie is spelled F E R N I E. Yes. Yeah. And, um, well, it's been awesome having you Thank on. You. I know you've got to make a journey tomorrow. <laughs> I appreciate you, um, you cutting so some time yeah. out for us here on the podcast and uh, wish you the best of success in this coming season and, and uh, with the new baby. And Thank you. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, another fisherman, I'm sure. Absolutely. Or well, fisherwoman. <laughs> yeah, fisherwoman, fisherman. We're not sure. We won't know. But hopefully you'll be able to make it up to Fernie again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Relive those uh, fishing experiences that you had back there. then. I look forward to it. Those yeah. cutthroat are amazing. So. <laughs> they sure are. Well, I really appreciate it. And uh, God bless until Thank I see you next time. You too. Thank you so much. Okay.